Uh, greetings in the Master's name. The um, title of the sermon this morning is Strangers and Pilgrims, and it's interesting uh, to me that Brother Mark emphasized that in Sunday school, and he didn't know I was going to preach on it, and I didn't know that he was going to emphasize it. But uh, it's the way uh, things transpire providentially, I think. I'd like to uh, just turn to uh, a, a few um, uh, songs, the words of some songs, we won't sing them, but in uh, 627 in the church hymnal is a song, Heaven is My Home, and it says, uh, I'm but, a, no, remember, Pilgrims and Strangers, that's the title of the message, and Heaven is My Home says, I'm but a stranger here, Heaven is My Home, Earth is a Desert Drear, now we sing these songs, and um I don't know if that's quite the way we see earth or not. Some people in history, many people throughout history would have their experiences, read Hebrews 11 and so on, but earth is a desert drear, heaven is my home. And then, uh, let's see, uh, heaven is my fatherland. And the second verse, yes, short is my pilgrimage, heaven is my home. Short is my pilgrimage, heaven is my home. And maybe a person can get unbalanced, and maybe I'm a little bit unbalanced on this. Uh, I know Melvin, Melvin Myers told me one time, he said, uh, he tries to stay balanced in life. And uh, I think he did a pretty good job of it, but um, I always remember that. Uh, Isha's come up, you know, and you can kind of fall to one side uh, or be strong or... Whatever. Anyway, um, and so what I say about strangers and pilgrims, to me, everything here is so temporary. It's so fleeting. And, um, uh, you know, the Bible says life is just a spark. And you know how a spark flies up. From, and, I mean, compared to eternity forever and ever and ever, I mean, what's this life? It's just so temporary. And that's kind of influences the way I view things. Uh, and, you know, what are we here for? Well, I think about, well, we're here to prepare for heaven. So heaven's our goal. But then that, that's not quite the whole truth because Revelation 4.11 says we're, we're to live to the glory of God. So in heaven, of course, uh, living with, we'll be praising God throughout eternity. But here on the earth, we're to live to his glory too. So our goal isn't just to get to heaven. Our goal is to glorify God while we're here. In fact, the uh, songs... Uh, I guess what's on your mind and things that have recently transpired and so on influence, uh, you know, what you notice and how you think. But um, the song, Come Gracious Spirit, Heavenly Dove, said, Lead us to God, our final rest, to be with Him forever blessed. Lead us to heaven and bliss to share fullness of joy forever there. It's a goal, uh, and that's what it's all about. But yet here on the earth... Uh, we, 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 we're not just enduring, or I know that's not what I want to say. We are enduring, but we're not just kind of um, hanging on till uh, we can get to heaven. We're, there, life here is very meaningful and purposeful, too. Uh, the other song, this is just a side note. What, it doesn't really relate that much to the message, but the other song that we sing, there's a wideness in God's mercy, and that's comforting. There's a kindness in his justice because you, 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 you look back and you think about all the mistakes you made during the week or something, and, uh, and then you think about the mercies of God as kind of comforting.
Well, uh, another song, a 424, and that's, I'm not sure that one's as familiar. I uh, didn't quite get around to it. Or t- uh, I have a little book that uh, Lester Showalter, one of Lester Showalter's boy put together years ago. It's a concordance to the church hymnal. It's got every word in every song. And so I was going to look up and see how many songs had the word strangers or pilgrims in them. I didn't get that done. But uh, 424 says, um, okay, it starts out, what wait I for but thee, my hope is in thy name. And that's Psalm 39.7. But it says, um, I am a stranger here. That's verse 3. I am a stranger here, a pilgrim as my fathers were. Strangers and pilgrims. And then we sing, um, we sing, uh, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, <clears throat> pilgrim through this barren land. Uh, leaning on the everlasting arms has a phrase in it, Oh, how sweet to walk in the pilgrim way. And then this song is not in our hymnals, but we probably all sang it somewhere along the line. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Well, that's true. I'd like to turn to Second uh, Corinthians 6. We are strangers and pilgrims. We're living in foreign territory. We're living in a foreign land right now. Second Corinthians 6, familiar verses. Verse 14. Oh, what I was going to say about being balanced, you know, uh, <clears throat> like when I think about death, you know, uh, death is it's painful because it's separation. But yet you've kind of, and that's where the thing about goal comes in, you've, you've reached the goal. When a person passes through the door of death, if they die in the Lord, they reach the goal, and that's what, you're, that's what you want. And so it's, hey, it's won. You've won the victory. And so there's, there's sadness because we're mortals. But for the one who died, it's, they die in the Lord. It couldn't be better. Well, okay. Second Corinthians. The Bible does say, "Weep with those that weep, and rejoice with those that rejoice." So, we, somebody told me one time that I'm just kind of a cold, analytical person, and so maybe <clears throat> I need to <clears throat> heed that too. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? You see the tremendous contrast in these verses. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. 
Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I could have just as well titled this message Separation of Nonconformity, but I wanted to get beyond that. I wanted to get to the root of it. And the root of it is strangers and pilgrims. It's what leads to the separation of nonconformity. Uh, the two kingdoms are the cause. We're not supposed to be isolationists. We're not to see how different we can be, but there are two kingdoms and they're opposites. Uh, Ephesians 2 really lays out the, um, to me, the uh, rationale or the essence for separation and nonconformity. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 6 says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And there are the tremendous contrast. Alive now, we're dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. There's a course of this world. There's a every, every, um, civilization, country, whatever. They have their culture, and it's ungodly. Every culture at its root is ungodly. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among them also we all had our conversation or manner of life in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, contrast verse 6. Uh, look at the contrast between verse 6 and, and, and like verse 3. Yeah. Uh, James 4, verse 4. I've thought already, if, if me as a human being would say this, as just as a preacher, it, I, I, would seem, uh, I would seem pretty um, radical. But James 4, 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And we say, well, sure, of course. But... <clears throat> uh, 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 an attraction to the things of the world. God calls it adultery. And he doesn't say if you're involved in it. He says, whosoever therefore will be a friend, if you even have a desire, if you're even looking that way, he says, you're the enemy. You're my enemy. That is strong language. And then, of course, 1 John 2 is, uh, again, very familiar verses, but they're in the Bible. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a blanket statement. A blanket, just a blanket statement. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. That's beautiful. I thought about uh, a scene in Pilgrim's Progress. 
Uh, I, maybe I shouldn't ask you. How many of you, have, uh, you don't have to raise your hand. But, you know, Pilgrim's Progress for a long time was the next bestseller to the Bible. Everybody should read Pilgrim's Progress. But this is about the pilgrims as they approach, um, as they come into Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair, see? Uh, it's amazing. Uh, God help John Bunyan write that allegory. But Okay, now these pilgrims, as I said, must needs go through this fair. Well, so they did. But behold, even as they entered into the fair, all the, all the people in the fair were moved, and the town itself, as it were, in a hubbub about them. And that for several reasons. For, first, the pilgrims were clothed with such kind of raiment as was diverse from the raiment of any that traded in that fair, the people, therefore, of the fair made a great gazing upon them. Some said they were fools, some said they were bedlams, and some they were outlandish men. Secondly, and as they wondered at their apparel, so they did likewise at their speech, for few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan, but they that kept the fair were the men of this world, so that from one end of the fair to the other they seemed barbarians each to the other. Thirdly, but that which did not a little amuse the merchandisers was that these pilgrims set very light by all their wares. They cared not so much as to look upon them, and if they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and look upward, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. One chanced mockingly, beholding the carriage of the men, to say unto them, What will ye buy? But they, looking gravely upon him, said, We buy the truth. At that, there was an occasion taken to despise the men the more, some mocking, some taunting, some speaking reproachfully, and some calling upon others to smite them. At last, things came to a hubbub and great stir in the fair, insomuch that all order was confounded. Now was word presently brought to the great one of the fair, who quickly came down and deputed some of his most trusty friends to take these men into examination, about whom the fair was almost overturned. So the men were brought to examination, and they that set upon them asked whence they came, whither they went, and what they did there in such an unusual garb. The men told them that they were pilgrims and strangers in the world, and that they were going to their own country, which was the heavenly Jerusalem, and that they had given no occasion to the men of the town, nor yet to the merchandisers, thus to abuse them, and to let them in their journey, except it was for that when one asked them what they would buy, they said they would buy the truth. But they, were, they that were appointed to examine them did not believe them to be other than bedlams and mad, or else such as came to put all things into confusion in the fair, and so on. So, like I say, a culture, a culture, a way of life of particular people. That, In fact, that was a, a definition I picked up somewhere. Culture, the way of life of a particular people, especially as shown in their ordinary behavior and habits, their attitudes toward each other, and their moral and religious beliefs. So we talk about acculturation. That's kind of getting absorbed into your culture and doing things the way your culture does. And now, of course, there's a lot of things that are immoral. But uh, I was thinking about cultural norms, just jotting down things that came to my mind as I thought about cultural norms. Some of the things that came to my mind were music, clothes, sports, leisure, entertainment, media, time, money, significance, what's significant to person, success, what's considered success. Those are all elements of a culture. And then <clears throat> I thought about what the rules and discipline says got quite a section in here on discipleship and nonconformity and what does it talk about first article is on the home our homes are different from our surrounding cultures homes most of them and so what does a pilgrim home look like how does it function how does it differ from the surrounding society how acculturated are we and then the uh, the next one is in devotional life 
devotional life. And then it talks about education. Well, we have our Christian schools now, and that, that helps. Uh, speech, reading, music. Uh, I was talking to a friend sometime back from, from uh, out of state, and uh, <clears throat> he had been um, in some communication with a young fellow trying to encourage him along the way. And uh, this uh, person, because of uh, some job, uh, this young man, because of some job involvements, uh, was exposed to some certain kind of music and kind of got uh, interested in it. And uh, and uh, the brother I was talking to wasn't just concerned about the music. He said there's something in a person's heart that makes him have a taste for that kind of music. Um, and so he was concerned. Um, well, then it talks about radio and television. And uh, that's pretty much been overtaken by the Internet. And uh, the ministry ministry has a real concern about the internet. It comes up pretty often in our ministerial discussions, and uh, some think our accountability system isn't working because of the failures. Like uh, somebody mentioned recently, uh, somebody that was um, lying on their accountability card for five years. They were viewing pornography and always putting down on their card everything was okay. Um, I hope we take that seriously. It's not just something you put yes, 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 and you know turn. And in fact, you're supposed to be with your accountability partner at least every three months. And uh, and actually, I'm supposed to be in touch with you too. So it's not just something there on paper. It's supposed to be active. And then uh, another failure was pointed out. Some somebody, and I guess it was one of our one southeastern member, but he got into adultery, and it started out with the communication on social media. And so there are dangers there, and we, we, we can't, you know, pretend that it's nothing, nothing to it. And yet another brother pointed out in this discussion, another brother pointed out, you know, like this, when some of the foes were pointing out, it's kind of like our system isn't working. But then another brother pointed out, he said, well, how many people, though, has it helped to not get involved in things they shouldn't? Maybe it's working better than we think it is. And you're never going to find something that's 100% foolproof. We're just, we're humans. And uh, there's people that, there are church groups that totally rule out electronics, anything, and they still have moral problems. So, um, but it, 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 it's still good to, to be aware of the dangers and to be accountable and help each other. Well, then there's quite a section on dress and appearance, two pages almost. And um, in uh, reading different tracts and so on, one one made this statement, and uh, it's true. Um, fashion designers encourage women in parading their erotic qualities, and that's been true not just in this century but um, or the past century, but all throughout history. Uh, in fact, I have this little book here, um, and I've got lots of little books along this line. I'm kind of a pack rat when it comes to pamphlets and books and stuff. This one is 1921. Dress, a brief treatise, Mennonite General Conference, Scottsdale, 1921. Uh, there was something in here. Oh, yeah. How churches get sidetracked. We have around us a number, and remember this was written in 1921, and it refers to the previous quarter century, so that goes back into the 1800s. We have around us a number of once plain but now fashionable churches. People tell us that it will only be a question of time until the Mennonite church will travel the same road. That may be so. We must admit that during the past quarter century, the drift among us has been in that direction. 
But we still have the confidence to believe that when once our people are fully awakened to their danger, get their eyes opened as to where this drift will take us, that the drift will stop and the church remain loyal to the Bible teaching on dress. That, that, that was what is now Mennonite Church USA writing that. And now to face these plainly, let us consider the contrast between, one, the scripture teaching on simplicity, nonconformity, and consequent uniformity in apparel, and the past record of the Mennonite Church on this question, and two, the contrast between that and the same church, but having dropped all restrictions as to dress, having precisely the same discipline as though the Bible were altogether silent on the question, are we in favor of the change? If not, what are we going to do to counteract the drift in its favor? Well, that's what they wrote in 1921. I put in uh, the mailboxes a, uh, the introduction to, uh, well, it's the publisher's foreword, uh, the book Sewing for Conservative Men. I don't know if uh, how much of it was the product of um, Teresa Bronx writing and how much was the editor's, but I think it's a, a very reasonable uh, approach to the subject. I encourage you to read that. And then, uh, oh, let's see, yeah, the next section then, or another section, was... Um, the role of woman, yeah, after dress and appearance, there's a section on the role of woman, and then in sexuality, and in temperance, and social and recreation, like, in, okay, uh, in sexuality, uh, and uh, the role of woman. Um, just recently, I ran across this um, description. The uh, election's over, and uh, this was the swearing in of a senator from Hawaii, I think, Kirsten Cinema. Kirsten's, and I, uh, this is not the whole article, and even what I do have here, I had to change some of the wording, but uh, Kirsten Cinema's swearing in look was a bold queer statement. Cinema is the nation's first openly bisexual senator and only the second out LGBTQ senator. Mainstream media is fizzing over Cinema's swearing in ensemble. A pearl-trimmed white sleeveless top that featured her gloriously toned arms and a floral print wiggle skirt, a gray furry stole, glitter-dotted handbag, and 1950s film noir waves in her hair, and to keep her warm in a Washington chill, a pink overcoat, a fashion turn that was unforgettable in its audacity. Style is how we make ourselves known, a way of singling to other members of the tribe, if you will. That cinema chose to show up in this attire is significant. Why does it matter? Because representation matters. Visibility matters. Cinema is sending a message. The outfit was like a dare. From the baubles on her toes of her shoes to the screen sirene set of her hair, Cinema's look was a subversive flaming arrow fired over the bow of the Stoogie Beltway ship. The pink coat, the exposed biceps, the stark defiance of the Capitol Hill dress code that insists women cover up their arms, powered that arrow with a fooey to you thrust. The outfit was composed of bold statement pieces, and the entire ensemble was itself a bold statement. I'm here. Get used to it. Fans remarked on the outfit with a mix of admiration and wry humor. Culture writer Constance Grady praised cinema's outfit as weaponized femininity. It meant a lot to me to see a growing girl's girl show up with swagger, fully in possession of her faculties and her fashion sense. It was a thrill to see cinema seizing the gendered sartorial scrutiny and having a bit of fun with it. I would say she inspired me to order a fa for my own, but I already own six. Cinema is declaring herself in word, in deed, and in fashion. 
She rose to that challenge in an unforgettable way. She did it guns out. She did it in pink. She did it in fall fur. She did it wearing sparkly shoes and carrying a polka dot purse. She did it. Dress doesn't make a statement. <laughs> well, then, uh, like I said, uh, there's a section on social and recreational activity. Let's talk. Uh, probably been several years now time gets away I was trying to play ball with the with the youth and uh, this one fellow I uh, was a little surprised at how good a ball player he was um, he, he was quite good and uh, I said something about it and uh, he he's from Ohio and uh, I don't know it's from Holmes County or there thereabouts well he said well don't you know that that's a national pastime of Holmes County <laughs> so <laughs> A little booklet here, uh, Strangers and Pilgrims by James Graham. This was Harold Press, 1951. And uh, the confession by lip and life, not the mere profession of being a stranger and alien, is the testimony to the world of otherworldliness in the Christian Conversely, any attachment to the things, possessions, relationships, recognitions of earth is a denial of the position of the sojourner and betokens acclamation, adjustment, satisfaction. Somehow that stood out to me as a pretty good statement about strangers and pilgrims. A couple verses that mention it here in closing. 1 Peter 1.17 says, well, Peter writes to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, and so on. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And then uh, chapter 2 Verses 9 to 11. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and I understand that is more the meaning there, a purchased people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And a few verses yet from Hebrews chapter 11. 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Let's kneel for prayer.